This is episode number 109 with Don Miguel Reese Jr. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? This week's podcast is brought to you by Sunlighten Saunas. Now, if you've been following me on Instagram stories for a while, you will know that I love my infrared sauna time. We've had one in our Bondi home for a few years now, but we recently got one in our Noosa home too, which is epic. And I often get asked about my favorite wellness and self-care rituals. And with the amount that I'm on and off airplanes, by far one of my favorites is time in my sauna. And I want to be the best version of myself. I want to show up to the world as the best possible version of me. And infrared saunas have been an amazing way for me to rest, rejuvenate, rebuild and heal both my mind and body. It's just time for me. I love it. No one interrupts me. It's like my little sanctuary and I just love time in there so much. And since I've personally been using it, I've noticed that my skin is even clearer and some aches and pains and little niggles that I had in my lower back have minimized, which is awesome. And the best part is I always walk out feeling bursting with energy. And as soon as I get out, I try and jump in the ocean because for me, that is just like heaven. I call that my aura cleanse and I just love it. The combination of the sauna and diving in the ocean afterwards is just, oh, heaven. The thing I love about Sunlighten is they are constantly working with designers, engineers, and scientists to research and develop cutting-edge wellness technologies with independently verified research data to back up their saunas. It's awesome. And their global mission is to help people maintain and improve their wellness and lifestyle. So for all my Aussie and New Zealand-based listeners, I have an epic offer for you. I have a $500 gift voucher just for you. All you have to do is head to sunlighten.com.au forward slash Melissa and mention the code word Melissa Ambrosini in your inquiry to receive your $500 voucher. How epic is that? And be sure when you get your sauna to tag me in your pics. Don Miguel Reese Jr. is a Toltec master of transformation. He is the direct descendant of the Toltecs of the Eagle Knight lineage and the son of Don Miguel Reese, who was the author of the mega spiritual life-altering texts, The Four Agreements. 
and by combining the wisdom of his family's tradition with the knowledge gained from his own personal journey, he now helps others realize their own path to personal freedom. And his father's book, The Four Agreements, was one of those life-altering books for me. And so I'm so excited for you guys to hear our conversation today. Because in today's episode, we chat about his journey and what it was like growing up with a father who is one of the biggest spiritual teachers of our time, who his biggest spiritual teachers are, what is the Toltec tradition, how he inspires his children, what is personal freedom, whether rebellion has to be part of our journey and our children's journey, how to love and accept ourselves unconditionally and why it's imperative for inner freedom. He also shares his success secrets, how to consciously parent. I loved his take on parenting, plus so much more. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can find in the show notes, and that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 109. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to read the review of the week. And that comes from Elle Flower. And she says, I've been listening to Melissa's podcast for over a year. Melissa, thank you. Your interviews are with world-class leaders. Your humble nature allows for your guests to open wide and speak from their hearts. And each time, everyone over delivers. I agree, they sure do. Your Monday Motivation podcast always feels like you are speaking directly to me, like a big sister, a mentor, or my best friend. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up, sharing, and creating content with epic people. Thank you, Elle. That is so beautiful. Thank you for your kind words. And I'm just so honored and grateful and touched that you get a lot out of these episodes. And now without further ado, let's bring on the super inspiring Don Miguel Reese Jr. Miguel, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Good afternoon, Melissa. How are you? My mom, she was visiting, made me some Mexican scrambled eggs uh, with cheese with a cup of coffee. And then uh, my wife made some muffins and we ate some of that. So eggs, cheese, manchego cheese and a cup of coffee with muffins. Oh, big breakfast. Yeah, yeah. my mother came up for uh, Mother's Day, so me and my kids got pampered this morning. Oh, lovely. That's so nice. So nice. Now, your dad wrote the book, The Four Agreements, which is one of the most life-changing spiritual texts of our time. And if you haven't read The Four Agreements, like it, it, for me, it was one of those pivotal books that I picked up very early on in my spiritual journey, and it really hit home for me. So can you tell us about your journey and what it was like growing up with your dad as this big spiritual teacher? The nice thing about being my father's eldest child is that I got to witness my father's own personal transformation. For me, the experience of growing up with my father is that I got to grow up with my father. You know, When I was young, uh, he was Dr. Miguel Ruiz. You know, He was the neurosurgeon or general surgeon and uh, he was very much a professional doctor. And 
I would say that's good eight years of my life, the first eight years. And, you know, he was a disciplinarian. He was expecting straight A's and that kind of type of thing. Then somewhere in his own life, uh, he had an experience, an epiphany or an aha moment, whatever you want to call it, something he couldn't explain. You know, he had a car accident. And in that car accident, he experienced himself leave his body and, well, save a bunch of people. And that's, that's, that's the story he would tell us. But it was something that he couldn't explain. You know, being a man of science and Western medicine, this didn't fit. You know, it, So he went to the person he trusted, which at the time was still my great-grandfather, Don Leonardo, and my grandmother, Madre Sarita, who are the teachers um, of that time of being the spiritual heads of the family. And you can say they restarted his apprenticeship with them because when he was young, much younger, you know, in his teenage years, both Don Leonardo and Sarita taught him. But, you know, as teenagers go, and I I call myself as included, we rebel against it in a certain way. It's a tradition in the family to rebel against the tradition of the family. And uh, when he had this ha-ha moment, he engaged it. And for several years, he was both a medical doctor, but in the weekends, he would always spend it with my grandmother after my my great-grandfather passed away and continued his apprenticeship. You know, he can, he would spend every weekend working with my grandmother in that practice. And you can say that in my life, you can say there was a parenting shift. You know, he wasn't as much as uh, that disciplinarian or he stopped really demanding that straight tens. You know, that's the grades. You know, the, that's the perfect score, you can say. And, but, you know, you could say that he, he still had a little bit of that, but he was starting to be a bit more laissez-faire type of thing. You know, he was still like, he would let certain things slip, but you know, we would still continue. And then he reached a certain apex on his journey. And in, and in that journey, he let go of being a medical doctor. You know, imagine somewhere in your mid-30s, you let go of your profession. You let go of being a medical doctor. You have a wife and kids and everything, and you change the direction of your life. You could say at that point, the major change really shifted, especially after my parents' divorce. You know, that's, that's another consequences of, of that decision. But my father just devoted himself completely to the practice of the family tradition. He began to practice it the way my grandmother practiced it. And to a certain degree, he liked it, but at the same time, he saw there was a lot of superstition, a lot of fanaticism that followed it. So he began to change it. He began to uh, put it into words that, according to him, were common sense. So in a certain way, he began to combine the Toltec tradition with Western medicine or Western philosophy, or you can say uh, science in particular. He took out all the superstition as much as he could out of it, and he began to teach it in a way that was practical. So you can say that would be the main shift within the family of teaching the Totec tradition. My grandmother had her own unique way of practicing it. Her father, Don Leonardo, had his own unique way of practicing it. And his father, Don Ezequiel, he had his own way of practicing it. All of them are product of their of their times, of their of their generation. Don Ezequiel, my great-great-grandfather, he taught it with the old stories, and he's the one who says that we're Totec, by the way. Don Leonardo was a musician, and he found a way to teach it through music. My grandmother was a, a faith healer and a, and a curandera, so she practiced it through that. And my father, being a medical doctor, he combined the tradition and stripped 
all superstition out of it as much as he could, like I said before. And that's where the four agreements comes in. Now, for me, as a growing up with Don Miguel Ruiz, at this point, his parenting style changed. He was more of a, it, he wasn't license fair. He wasn't a disciplinarian. He was more of, all right, I want you to find out your strengths. I want you to become aware of your consequences. I want you to become aware of, to have confidence in yourself, to say yes to the things you want to say yes to and no to say to the things you want to say no to and begin to respect yourself to experience the consequences of your own choices. So he taught me to slowly to no longer be afraid of failure, but to learn from failure, to get up and whenever there was a failure to get up. And he's told me that the more you get up, it's actually the, the more you learn more about yourself, but also more from life. It's when life begins to teach you. So you can say in those three, in those three facets, growing up with my father, the constant was always love. The, the way he approached parenting reflected his own motivator. Like you could say when he was a doctor, he was very much domesticated to that. I believe that idea that he had to be a doctor in order to be someone in the world. Then there was a, the, the part of a student where he began to let go of it, but didn't know where, in which direction to go in. And once he found that direction and found that confidence, he began to teach us that. You know, you can say something my father always said, I can't give what I do not have. But the beautiful thing about that is that in his style of teaching, it, it, he also changed the way he loved us and letting us experience life, making our own choices, guiding us whenever he could, of course. But uh, he, he always was there. And to a certain degree, it was kind of difficult to do homework around him because whenever he was showed up, you know, it, it was just so much fun. You know, it, it's, 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 it was difficult to do homework because when he was around, we wanted to be with him. And then little by little, he began to tour. So you can say that was that facet during my college years and high school years where I didn't see him that much because he began to tour. This is the days before Facebook and social media. You, you, you got a reputation by invitation. You know, you, you, you would go to places. There would only be five people, three people, 10 people. But little by little, because he was my grandmother's son, because my, at that time, my grandmother was the celebrity. My grandmother was the one who had the great reputation in Southern California and neighboring states uh, about being a faith healer. She was quite famous. Uh, she, could, she could say that uh, the University of Ca California, San Diego, she, she would give lectures on faith healing to the doctors there and teach them about the old tradition. She actually worked for the state of California. And she was even inducted into the San Diego Women's Hall of Fame. So to a certain degree, when people say that I'm walking in my father's shoes, I answered, no, actually, we're both him and I and my brother, we're all following my grandmother's dream. We're continuing her dream of sharing this tradition with everyone. So you can say in just in the long story short, I watched my father create his dream and that gave us confidence to follow our own dream. There was always love. There's always magic in the sense of he was a fun man to be around with. But he was a father whenever he, we needed a father and a disciplinarian when we really needed that. But the, the disciplinarian came and changed to, well, ruthless in the sense of we had a consequence of our decisions. He says, okay, get yourself out. I'm here if you need my help, but I know you can do it. But here's my hand if you need it. But I know you can do it by yourself. And you can say that's how he taught us. That's the unique path. Mm. Would you say that your grandparents are your biggest spiritual teachers? Yes. I don't know if you've seen a movie called Coco. 
the Disney Pixar movie. But my grandmother was like that. My grandparents were that old Mexico, Mexico uh, spirituality of stories and shamanism and all these beautiful stories. Because my, my grandmother was born in 1910, so she was that generation that experienced the Mexican Revolution and her father as well and her great-grandfather. Her grandfather uh, was the first Mexican in the family. Before that, there were uh, new Spaniards, I guess. That's like uh, the new the new Spain before the the war for independence in Mexico. But they came. They brought with them the old country, the old stories, the old myths and, and fables, and and it was magical. You know, my grandmother was already in her sixties when I was born, and she passed away at the age of ninety eight. So in her old age, she was the spiritual head of our family. My grandfather passed away in 1990. So I was 14 years old when my father, my grandfather passed away and I still love him very much. And my life with him was very much magical as well. So my grandmother, you could say was the, the big, strong image. Both my grandmothers, actually my, my mother's mom as well. Very hard, very strong, uh, hardworking women. So you can say that the idea of living in a family with an alpha male really didn't exist in our family. We were a matriarch, a matriarch, family where the two f- female figures were the strongest figures of, of them all. So the tradition is doesn't pass down from man to man. It's, it gets passed down to the people who are interested. And my grandmother was the strongest shaman I've ever met, as well as my other grandmother, Lanarda. So you can, you can say with all my love, yes, their passion, their faith really fed not just me, but all our family. And she had 13 children. So you can imagine how many cousins I have and great <laughs> nephews and all that. Huge. Wow. So beautiful to have such amazing examples, to be brought up with such beautiful examples and all of these teachings that you were exposed to. It's just so amazing. But for someone who doesn't know what the Toltec tradition is or has never even heard of the Toltec wisdom or philosophy or tradition, can you please explain what it is? The word Toltec is a Nahuatl word that in English means artist. I'm an artist. If I translate the phrase, the Toltec art of transformation into 100% English, it means the artist path of transformation. I am an artist and the canvas for my work of art is my life. So imagine that canvas that changes continuously with every stroke of the paintbrush. Well, you can say in this, in this, in this matter, with every decision, with every choice, with every moment that I've experienced, it can go from the most perfect, beautiful, harmonious dream to the most perfect, horrendous nightmare. And it goes back and forth between the two, always evolving, always changing. And the question my grandmother always asked is, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? If I let my beliefs control me, then I, my beliefs paint that picture and it's not really my life. It's my belief system or whatever ideals or conditions I've learned or been subjugated to. But if I control knowledge and I'm aware that I'm the one who controls my yes and my no, that is my free will, my perception that the energy that animates this body, that animates this mind is in fact the instrument I use to create this work of art, then I can create it and co-create with life this harmonious dream, if that's what I want. And if life gives me a hard moment or a heartbreak, then I can make the most perfect, beautiful, melancholy work of art that tugs at our soul, and I can learn from that. So 
in a, in a nutshell, that's the basis of the philosophy. The whole point of it is to enjoy life, to enjoy being ourselves, which allows us to enjoy the relationships we have with the people in our life. So that's the basis of the philosophy, the history of it. It's a Mesoamerican tradition. That means pre-Columbus, before 1492, uh, in the Central Valley of Mexico. As a civilization, the Toltec considered themselves descendants of the Teotihuacan people. And with every generation, uh, they would change. You know, you could say they, they created different communities in Hidalgo and the state of Mexico and in the Valley of Mexico. And they thrived as artists and as an, their own little empire, but they ceased to exist as a civilization or at least as a society. With either with the expansion of the Aztec Empire or the expansion of the Spanish Empire. Regardless of which one it was, it it ceased to exist as a civilization. It didn't go beyond 1400, the 1400s. But what did continue was an oral tradition. An oral tradition that was taught from generation to generation the stories of our ancestors. So you can say that there's probably pockets in Mexico that teach the Totec tradition as it was over 500 years ago. And then there's families like ours that adapted it with every generation, and every generation taught it the best they could with the language and instruments they have. You can say that Don Ezequiel taught it through stories of his own small town, and yeah, with the shadow of the Inquisition still there, they could, it was a taboo to teach anything outside the Catholic Church. So they taught it to just a select few people, you know, the people who were interested. His son, Don Leonardo, taught it through, found a way to teach it through music, as well as the old stories, of course, Don Ezequiel's stories. But he found through music to teach people the Toltec tradition in its own unique way. So you can say there was a transformation right there. Then his daughter, Madre Sarita, taught it through faith and spirituality and combined Catholicism with the Toltec tradition to put it in her own way to help people in her community, from Juanacatlan, Jalisco, which was where she was born, and eventually to San Diego, California, where she re relocated her whole family to my father and me now me and my brother. So each generation teaches it according to how life is teaching us. For example, uh, the difference right off the bat is I'm teaching both in Spanish and in English. I don't speak Nahuatl anymore. And I live in the, in an age where I'm communicating with someone across the Pacific Ocean in real time using elect electricity and waves and all this thing called the internet. And we're talking to one another and sharing the conversation. We live in a time where I can learn from the ancestors of every human being around every corner of the world. And I'm going to learn that. And the total tradition, if I teach it, or I learn it only as it was before, then it becomes something that belongs in a museum. You know, like uh, seeing the artifacts in Teotihuacan or in Tula or, the, or Teotihuacan in the uh, museums in Mexico. What does that have to do with my life? But if I've adapted and learned from those lessons and adapted to my everyday life, then they're still relevant. And to a certain extent, I can go back to the question prior with my father which was at the task, and that's how the Four Agreements were born. As you can say, the, the beautiful thing about that book and all the books that we deal with is that it brings out ancient traditions 
in a way that's relevant for our life. But if it was told in the ancient way, it, it just seems it's like a visit to the museum. But told in this unique way, it's something that we can find in our life. We can find that relevancy. And more important, we know how to apply it. And from that application, life is teaching us and it gives that depth to that knowledge. It, it's, that's what makes knowledge uh, and turns it into wisdom. Wisdom is being able to learn how to use knowledge in life in the appropriate moment. And in return, life will teach us even more wisdom. And that's the beauty of it. Mm, it's beautiful. It's taking these ancient traditions and modernizing them, really. So how do you inspire your children? How do you make it relevant for them? My wife and I, we, we come from two different traditions. You know, we just actually funny. We just did the, uh, the, uh, the one of those, uh, heritage things, uh, the, you, you turn in your DNA, you you spit into some, something and they tell you the genealogy and, uh, with our kids, with our son. And, uh, her ancestry comes from England and Germany and very much European. And my tradition comes from uh, Mexico and the, the Mesoamerica and, of course, Spain. So we look right there and we see not just the abundance of culture that is within our own family, but we also understand the traditions that come with it. You know, not only the Toltec, but the Catholicism, as well as the Mormon tradition from my wife's side and the, even the Jewish tradition from her side. And all of a sudden, there's this huge, rich combination of ancestors coming together to create this beautiful child. So it's been a beautiful way to see it, or at least an interesting way of finding that balance of my wife teaching our kids the values of her family, which come, you know, immediately from a place called Salt Lake City, Utah, and mine that comes from Tijuana and San Diego in the border town between the United States and Mexico, and as well the stories from Juanacatlan, Jalisco, and of course the stories from England, from where the Nuddles are coming from, and as well as uh, Germany. And all of a sudden, you, you have this rich combination of, of stories that are just blended into one another and shared with them. So you can say that with my kids, in regards to the Toltec tradition, they watch us by applying it. You know, we, we live it, you know, in the sense of we know that the difference between the four, the four conditions and the four agreements. The four conditions are the corruption of the four agreements that I have to live up to an image, that we use the four agreements to domesticate ourselves, which is the telltale sign. If I judge myself for taking things personal, if I judge myself for making an assumption, if I judge myself for, for not being impeccable with my word or judge myself for not doing my best, then at that moment, that's a telltale sign that I've used the four agreements to domesticate myself, which is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual. If you live up to the expectation, you get a reward. And if you don't live up to the expectation, you get a punishment. And since we are emotional beings, that reward feels like acceptance and the punishment feels like rejection, which is the way we've learned conditional love. So you can say the four agreements, the book itself, the main problem it faces is domestication. So becoming aware in, within ourselves of how I domesticate myself with the four agreements and turning into the four conditions is a very important thing. And knowing that the four agreements, the difference is that the word agreement represents the action of saying yes. That's what an agreement is. I say yes to that. I, I'm free to say yes to taking it personal and I'm free to, to say yes to not taking it personal. That's what personal freedom is. 
I accept myself just this way. And without awareness, knowing that I'm free to say yes to taking it personal. And if I take it personal, it's because I want to take it personal. Even without awareness and accepting that that's who I am, I choose not to take it personal. And that's when that agreement becomes alive because I used it to inform my choice, but I'm the one making the choice. And that right there is what we teach our kids, to teach them the confidence in themselves to make choices and to respect themselves to experience the consequences of their choices. So you can say that though we're not necessarily telling them that they have to be impeccable with the word and all that kind of thing, we're always giving them the opportunity to experience the consequences of their own choices, but at the same time, give them the opportunity to begin to trust in themselves to make a choice, which to us is the most important part of, of it all. This is my choice. This is my free will. This is what I want to create with my life. Mm. It's so interesting because parenting is such a journey. I have a 12-year-old stepson. I call him my bonus son. and. No one wants their children to rebel, but you rebelled. Your dad rebelled. I rebelled. So do you think rebellion is part of the journey or how can we inspire our children not to rebel? Ooh, I, will, I actually have to say rebellion is part of the journey, as tough as it is for us a parent, because my, my, my son is 12, my daughter is 10, and they're, they're both turning the uh, 13 and 11, uh, respectively, this summer. So puberty has hit, and I can tell you right away, everything I knew about parenting went out the window. Me and my wife are starting from scratch. It's, it's, a, it's a whole new game. You know, it's the, and that's the thing about parenting. We don't know what we're doing. We're doing the best with what we've got. And if we've got conditional love, that's then of course we want to placate that rebellion. We want to them to do everything we tell them to do. If we want them to be ready for the world, that rebellion is an important thing because what's happening in that rebellion is that they're learning to assert themselves. So forget about the terrible twos or the terrible it's. It's the terrible teens because now they know how to talk. And not only are they not talking, they're engaged. They're doing their rebellion in the world, and all of a sudden that bubble that we built for them as they were growing up burst because we realized, or at least I realized that me and my wife did, that if we keep them in that bubble, they're going to suffer. They're, they're not going to be ready for the world. So we begin to look at the world they're going through because the world they are go becoming a teen into, or they're becoming young adults, is quite different from the world we came in. You know, the consequences that someone can record it and put it on Facebook and there it is around the world. It's there, you know, it, it's, it's a whole different game. So they're experiencing something about learning to be social that we didn't have to worry about, you know, gossip only went as far as those little paper notes or as far as the voice can go. But with the internet here, it can go all over the world and you never know when it becomes a meme, right? So to that extent, it's, we're teaching them to live without us. Uh, I'm going to quote a movie that uh, I just saw a movie called Black Panther, which I really liked. And there's a line there that I absolutely love. The, the king of this country, the Black Panther, the, the new one, takes a journey to, into, as he becomes the new king and he goes into the spirit world and he, he meets his father and he tells his father, 
you know, I'm not ready to live without you. And the father replies to him, the main job of a father, of a parent is to teach their children to survive without them. Are you telling me that I failed in that, in that mission? The reply was different, but to me, that line right there was paramount. You could say it's, it's, it's an eye opener because it's true. Our job as a parent is to teach them to survive without us. That if something were to happen, we know that they can survive. That's the whole thing. And to a certain extent, for example, my son who has autism, you know, we went to a conference not too long ago about, you know, what, what, about the transition between, you know, he's going, he's in middle school right now and we're looking into what's going to look like and to going to college or going to work and all that kind of thing. And something that one of the teachers told us that at the age of 15 or 16, you know, because they're special needs or whatever, uh, we put a life jacket on them trying to protect them, you know, because, you know, of the autism or whatever other special needs other parents have with our kids. It's the most important thing for us to eventually take off that life vest, that life jacket, and let them swim on their own and trust them and give them confidence that they can do it. To a certain degree, it's the same, it's the same teaching that that movie taught us. So that message was delivered to us in two different ways. One pop culture through a movie and the other through, uh, workshops, uh, created by the school district here. And they both, uh, resonated the message. And you can all say that reaffirmed it for me that our job as a parent is to let them have confidence in themselves in order to survive in the world without us. They're not ours. We brought them into the world, but they are their own individual. So that rebellion, when they rebel against us, is that they're trying to be free. They're trying to make their way the world. They want to create their world. They want to become their own artist. Now, me, mind you, as a parent, I'm still going to parent them. I'm still going to be the disciplinarian. Me and my wife will both teach them this. But the difference is knowing the difference between domestication and how life teaches us through, through action-reaction. When my father held my son for the very first time when he was born and he gave him back to us, to me and my wife. He looked at us and says, you made a beautiful child. You made a beautiful human being. Now domesticate him. And I'm going, what? The author of the four agreements is asking me to domesticate his grandson. And my father says, figure it out. Because here's the thing. If you don't domesticate him, someone else will, and you won't like the way they domesticate him. And for sure, it's the truth because I've witnessed it. I've seen people trying to domesticate my kids, and it's not the funnest thing. You can say that right there, I had a challenge. How to raise a child without domestication? And the answer is, it's impossible. And the reason why I say it's impossible, because domestication itself is the corruption of how life teaches us, which is action-reaction. And I'll use this as an example. Action-reaction. You can say one of the, the laws of physics says that in order for an object to move, there needs to be a force that moves that object. Well, my body is an object, and the force that moves that object is the energy that animates it. You might call it a spirit. You might call it a soul. You might call it a life. You might call it intent. You might call it God or life. Whatever your tradition is, that's what we call in the Totec tradition the Nawal. The Nawal is the force that animates this body and this mind. But that law triggers a second one, which is for every action, there's a reaction of, of the great, uh, of similar energy. So for every con- every action we take, there's a consequence. Okay. A consequence is just the reaction to our choices. So 
Let's imagine this image. Let's say that in your house or in my house, if I pay the electric bill, the consequence is I'm going to have electricity in my house. If I don't pay the electric bill, it means I won't have electricity. It's neither good nor bad nor right or wrong. It's just a consequence of a decision or a choice. Now, domestication looks like this. If I pay the electric bill, the consequence is that I'm going to be a stand-up person in someone else's eyes, that I'll be responsible, that I will be lended money. I'm a, I'm someone who has values. If I don't pay the bill, then I'm a bum and I'm irresponsible and I definitely won't be paying or lending him money. There's a difference between the two. In one, there's a action-reaction, but there's a consequence. And which consequence do I want? Do I want electricity? Great. I do the work that allows me to pay for electricity. And if I don't have enough money, then I have to make a choice between food and electricity. Then I'm going to choose food. And neither good nor bad nor right or wrong. It's just a choice. Domestication says, well, I don't want to look bad or I don't want to look like irresponsible to other people. So I have to pay the bill because if I don't pay the bill, they're going to frown upon me, look down upon me, and they're going to call me a bum or whatever. So I'm going to go into debt. Even when I don't have this money, I'm going to go into debt just so I can live up to appearances. These are the difference between domestication and the way life teaches us through action-reaction. So in teaching our kids and living the four agreements or living the Toltec tradition, the most important part is teaching them the difference between the two. But that only is taught if I know the difference within myself. For example, right now, my son came in. I could have easily been mad at him. How dare you interrupt me, whatever. Or I just allowed him to be part of the interview for a little bit. He sat down next to me. He watched me do the interview. He got bored. He got up and left. And right there, I, ha- I have peace. And he knows now, like, okay, well, it, he, my dad's working. I'm going to give him his space. And there we are. The thing about it is how we motivate him. You know, you can say that so, someone earlier asked me, how do I, how do I do that with, uh, with kids with their, their grades? You know, if we want them to get straight tens. Well, it's about getting to know them. You know, what motivates them? Because the big difference between domestication and action-reaction is I use my love as a motivator. I love you if, if you give me straight A's, you're worthy of my love. And to a lot of reasons, that strive for perfection, to be completely free of any flaw. Because if I live up to the expectation, I'm worthy of love. And if I don't live up to the expectation, I'm worthy of the rejection. Then that using love as the motivator is what creates all these emotional problems, all these emotional burdens, all this emotional reaction that we have in the world where we reject ourselves because we don't live up to an image or we have to buy this thing in order to live up to a commercial or the, to our standards or to a cultural belief. You know, that's what my grandma says, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? And in this case, knowledge is controlling you because you're trying to live up to an, an image. But if you teach them, all right, life is action reaction there's consequences for every decision so my son wants to uh, stay in in the track team or play soccer or my daughter wants to play with her girlfriends or be, be able to play with the digital world okay you can have that there's a consequence i say all right i know that's what you want so you get that privilege if you get give me passing grades or get me straight a's you get all these privileges but if you fail 
then I'm going to revoke one of these privileges, namely soccer or the so the digital. You know, I, I eliminate the things I want to eliminate, or in this case, I eliminate something that they really are motivated for. For example, my son, my son, we you know we take we took out a lot of sugar from his diet, but he wants to have lemonade. He loves lemonade, so I said, okay, we'll make you this deal. Give me a whole week of good work at school, and on Friday, I will give you a lemonade, and we can even give you a, a piece of pizza if that's what you want. And he says, okay, fine. And he's really motivated for that. The difference is that my love is not the motivator. My He has my love. He has my love whether he gets those grades or not. I love him. That's never in question. I'm always going to be proud of him. But what I'm teaching them is that life, there's consequences. Which consequence do I want? Because if we don't do the deadline for work, well, we're going to lose the job. Or if you want to have a certain lifestyle, then you have to work to, in order to create that lifestyle and understand the consequences of going into debt because that's that debt is trying to live up to an image that we don't have. And we dive going deeper and deeper into a hole that's really hard to get us get ourselves out of it. And for what? Because we wanted to live up to an image that doesn't exist. Uh, to some of us, that is. To other people, it's a little more di- trickier than that, of course. But in this, in the sense, at least to this, to this part of it, it's about accepting themselves. This is me, and because this is me, in what direction do I want to go in life? Because here's the thing: I am the sum of every decision that I've ever made. Every choice, every yes, every no, has led me to this point. But at the same time, I'm the youngest I will ever be. I have my whole life ahead of me. How do I want to live it? How do I want to engage it? So to accept myself is to accept myself that this is me. At this very moment, this is who I am. Every decision, every choice, even my appearance, this is me. Once I accept that and love myself, I can go in any direction I want. What do I want my next five years to look like, my next 10 years to look like? How do we love and accept ourselves unconditionally? Because this is something that I hear a lot, you know, women, especially, you know, hating their bodies, loathing themselves. How can we love and accept ourselves unconditionally? And why is it so important? Well, it's very important because our personal freedom is, is attached to it, you know, we, in creating our own life and enjoying life. That, that's the part that matters. It's easier to understand unconditional love if we understand what conditional love is, which is domestication. Like, uh, if let's say let's say that the perfect version of me as a man, of as Miguel, is to be twenty-seven years old with a full set of hair and weighing one hundred and seventy pounds or something like that. I look at myself in the mirror, and that's just not the truth. I'm forty-two years old. I weigh one hundred and eighty-five pounds, and my hair is definitely receding. That's the truth. But if I believe that image of perfection, that in order to be perfect, I have to be completely free of any flaw. If I look at myself in the mirror and I'm not that image of perfection, which is 170 pounds, full set of hair and being 27 years old, then I'm going to hear that, that internal judgment, that diatribe that's going to say, you fat bleep, you all fat bleep, you both all fat bleep. And that judgment that we hear, that judgment as a, as an instrument, we use to reject ourselves all because we didn't live up to this image that we think is perfection, which is to be completely free of any flaw. And that is something learned. 
once we become aware that that's happening, that we're using our word in that way, that we're using our word to subjugate our will, to reject ourselves, we have a choice to continue to believe it or to let it go. So you could say at this point, let's just say that I've been living it through whole ways. Those beliefs only have power because I've said yes to them. You see, the truth exists whether you believe it in or not. That's something beautiful. I love that from Neil deGrasse Tyson. He says that and it's beautiful. Let me add something to that. A belief only exists for as long as you say yes to it. As soon as you change your mind and say no to it, the belief ceases to exist, which means all beliefs only exist while we believe it. It needs us in order to exist, while the truth doesn't need us. The truth exists with or without me. So from that point of view, the word perfection means to be completely free of any flaw. Guess what? We define what a flaw is. We define a flaw through agreements, through the action of saying yes to something. Our definition of beauty has completely changed over the centuries. The image of Marilyn Monroe was she still be beautiful in today's age? And would today's definition of beauty be the same in 1720? And the answer is no, because our standards are different. Back then, if you were a heavier set, you were definitely more considered more beautiful because that meant that you had money to eat. Where in a time where we were all poor, to be thin was not considered beautiful in any way, shape, or form. And styles change. Beliefs change. For example, the phrase, I live in a red state. In the 1950s here in the United States, it meant that you live in a state that was socialist, communist, and fighting words, depending who you say that to. But fast forward to 2018 and say, I live in a red state, means that you live in a state that was conservative Republican. The complete opposite and fighting words, depending on who you say that to as well, of course. The phrase remained the same, but the meaning and definition changed because the community and the times changed. If you understand this concept, then we can see that our definition of what a flaw is is also set by agreement, which means there's no such thing as a flaw in the world. It's only in our beliefs, in our minds, which means everything is perfect because it exists at this very moment. So. To bring it back to conditional love, conditional love is believing all those images of, of what a flaw is, and it has power over us for as long as we believe it. This is where uh, my favorite quote from Eleanor Roosevelt comes in. No one can make me feel inferior without my consent. I love that phrase. So those that image of conditional love only has power because I've given it power to make me feel inferior. I've been living conditional love because I've said yes to it. To let go of it is to forgive ourselves, forgive myself for ever saying yes to it in the first place. So what's unconditional love? The willingness to see myself as I am. You see, conditional love only wants to see what it wants to see, that image of perfection. And if I don't have it, I'm going to reject myself. But unconditional love is the willingness to see myself as I am, the willingness to see my truth at this very moment. This is the way I look. Yes, I'm 185 pounds. Yes, I'm 42 years old. And yes, I am balding. This is me. This is my truth. To love myself is to accept this is my truth. And in which direction do I want to go in? So you can say to have unconditional love for other people is the willingness to see them as they are. Not as I want to see them, but as the person that is. For example, with my mom or my wife or my daughter or my son. I can see them as my wife or daughter or son or daughter or, or mom. If I take off those masks, I'll see 
that human beings are doing the best with what they've got. I look at my mom and I see Maria, and she's doing the best with learning to be herself at the age of 65 going on 66. I see my wife take off that mask, and I see Susan doing the best with what she's got and engaging life as best as she knows how. Same with my kids. It's the way that I know who they are by willing to see them. But in order for me to share that with them, I start doing it with myself. And with that, I begin to respect myself, to respect my capability to say yes and no to the things I want to say yes and no to, and to respect myself to experience the consequences of my own choices, which allows me to respect the consequences and the decisions of my own kids or my wife and know that they are free to create their own life. I only control to the tips of my fingers. They control to the tips of theirs. I don't control their will. They control it. Just as they don't control my will, I control it. So it can co-create. So you can say in that point, going back to tying it all up with the last few questions, raising a child with the four agreements, or you can say any, any of our traditions from around the world, is to love and respect them and to feel the consequences of our choices. But here's our hand if you need our help. And yes, I will be a disciplinarian. I will uh, apply those rules to my children, but I'm going to love them regardless of whether they follow that decision or not, uh, to respect their choices in life. It's their life. Same with my wife, same with my mom, same with my father, because that's what I have for myself. And the only way I know how to engage them is by seeing myself, which goes back to, I can only give what I have. If I have conditional love for myself, then I've got nothing but conditional love to give to other people. But if I begin to heal myself, to give myself permission to heal from the wounds that conditional love left in my life, then with that healing, I'm able to love myself just the way I am and accept myself as I am and engage the world as it is because I engage the people in my life as they are. And that's what I get to share. So to me, unconditional love allows me to heal all the wounds I have in my life. It gives me the opportunity to share that healing in the relationships I have with the people in my life. You know, if it's every relationship, for as long as we're both alive, anything is possible, including healing the wounds that divided us. And I can begin to slowly share that with everyone around me and engage them and enjoy those relationships. And when I enjoy those relationships, I enjoy life. What do you attribute your success to? To my family. You can say my family, we, we co-create this. You know, my, it's a, my father taught me and he paved a very good way, a way that my grandmother started in her own way and a, a path that her father and her great-grandfather. I stand on the shoulder of giants. But in my life, my, my wife and my kids have been a great, strong support. I've learned so much from my children. I've learned so much from my wife. You can say it inspires me to go f- through more. You, know, I, I, you can say that the success I've had is because I keep following through. I follow through, follow through, keep going, keep going, because I want to see how this all ends up. And I'll do it for as long as I'm interested. Once I stop being interested, I'll change direction in life. But for the moment, my success in parenting has led me to be the father of a 12 and a 10-year-old. We've made it this far. We've kept them alive, and that's a success in itself. 
And now we're in learning to di- face the new obstacles in their life, but it's their obstacles, not mine. And that's the beauty of it. They, they are facing their own obstacles and I'm helping them to figure out how to face it. And when they learn how to face it, they'll have confidence in themselves. That's the success. The success with my wife is because we love each other. You know, my wife, my, my stepmom asked my wife once, you both come from two different cultures. How, how were you able to manage the culture clash? And my wife answered beautifully, because we love each other. So the motivator that's allowed us to be together for 14 years is love. We love each other. It's the thing that allowed us to follow, figure out how to argue with one another, how to find the common ground, how to help each other and how to stay in love with one another. That's a success. In regards to the books and writing, you know, I, I, I let go. I used to work in the film industry went up in my twenties. And then I asked myself, what, what kind of father do I want to be? I want to be this kind of father. Okay, well, I decided to let go of the film industry and I, I engaged the family tradition. And little by little, I started to figure out how to teach. When I, when I first started, I had zero people come to my classes. I remember going to a class and no one showed up, but I stayed in that room the duration of the time that the event was supposed to happen, two hours. I sat there in two hours. I went over everything I was going to say. and. By the end of it, I, you know, I, I learned that hard knock, but at the same time, I followed through. And you can say that was in 2006 that that happened. And for a good four years, I, I would be very happy if I had 15 people or 20 people showing up and follow through to 2018. The people who come to my classes range from 14 people to 500 to 600 people. And, you know, sometimes I go to an auditorium and I'm like, I'm amazed at the number of people who are there. Sometimes I, I, I'm, I, I'm going to do a workshop and I'm just expecting 20 people and I get 60. I'm like, whoa, okay, I wasn't ready for this. Let's play it by ear. Let's, get, let's, let's do this. Follow through, follow through, follow through. And that's been the secret professionally. Whenever life gives me the opportunity to follow through. And the other part that I learned is that you know people sometimes stand up and walk out of the, the presentation and for some time, I tried my best to keep the energy alive and all kind of thing to keep them in their seat. And then I realized I am wasting my energy on someone who is not interested in what I'm going to say. I focus my energy on the people who are sitting down, giving me their attention because they're engaging me and they're giving me permission to teach them. And all of a sudden, I realized when I teach, it's because people have given me permission to teach them or to share my tradition with them. And all of a sudden, everything changed with that moment. Oh, I'm not trying to keep them in their seats. I'm engaging the people who are in their seats, and they're giving me their time. And it's them who I'm talking to. And the other people hear it, and they like it. They may stay in their seats. And if they don't, they walk away. That's fine. Because something I've also learned is that with the same breath, breath that I say things, I'm both right and wrong at the same time. I'm right to the people who agree with me, and I'm wrong to the people who disagree with me. But what do I control? The reason why is because I don't control their perception. They control it, and they choose what they believe and what they don't believe. But what I control is the clarity and integrity of what I say, the passion I have for things. And that passion is what is conveyed. And to a certain degree, that's the success, to learn that lesson. To learn that lesson 
from being in rooms when I'm the only one standing there when I'm giving a presentation, which taught me my name alone is not going to bring people there. They're not there because of the name. Some people might give me the opportunity because of the name, but whether they stay or not is completely up to me. So I follow through. I, I give everything I have. And it's wonderful because when I first started, I, I would run out of things to say in 15 minutes, but now I can easily talk six hours without stopping. And the only reason why I stop is because people need to take a bathroom break and they need those, those breaks. They can only be in that chair for only for so long, even though I'm having a good time in the stage. To me, that's that's been the secret to my success. Whether I write a book or I do a presentation, I follow through each time. I love that. What are you working on within yourself at the moment? Or what are you wanting to improve within yourself? I believe that we're always evolving and growing and learning. So is there anything that's quite prominent for you right now? Professionally, I'm writing a book about uh, relationships with my dear friend, Heather Ashamara. That's the, that's the, the professional level. That's um, We're writing a new book uh, uh, right now. The title we originally had was The Soul of Intimacy, but my publisher changed the title of it. So now it's called The, the Seven Secrets to a ha- Healthy, Happy Relationship. In my own personal journey, it's relearning how to not take it personally. To not take things personally simply means that I do not assume responsibility for someone else's will. They control it. That's what we were talking about before. I only control to the tips of my fingers. You control to the tips of yours. So when you first practice this agreement, you start at the very um, extremes of your circle of friends. You know, you start at the very and uh, the and the outer layers of of your relationships. You know, those are the easiest ones not to take things personal, and you slowly move your way to the center. And for the longest time, I thought facing my mom, my dad, and my brothers were the core of not taking things personally. And to a certain degree, for several years, I'd begun to master it and became really good at it. And I thought, yes, I've mastered this agreement. And then life said, oh, really? You think this is the center? This is the core? Let me open up this pedal and expose the new core, my son and my daughter, my teenage, or you can say tweens. They're about to become official. My son's about to turn 13 in one month's time. And... And my daughter is already in her uh, her preteens, and, and I'm, I'm already seeing the teenage girl that she's coming out, and all the hormones come in, and all the, the ups and downs that puberty brings. And all of a sudden, I'm starting back to square one, and I'm relearning how to do this again, and I'm getting better at it. You know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm that, to a certain extent. That's this conversation, this interview has been geared towards that. This is exactly what I'm facing. I'm learning that my job as a parent is to teach them to survive without me. And the reason why is because it's their life, not my life. It's their life. It's their their successes, it's their mistakes, it's their heartbreak, it's their whatever God throws at us. It's their life. They're the ones who has to go through it. For example, autism, it's not me and my wife who have to walk through it. It's my son who has to experience it. He has to figure out how to survive with it. But we're there to help them. And that was a huge, huge aha for me. Because for the longest time, it was like, we have, we're the parents of an autistic son, and we have to and do this and do that. And this, oh, this fear and anxiety that comes with it. Then all of a sudden, we're like, oh, wait a minute. It's not our life. It's his. And all of a sudden, it totally changes. Okay, we are here to help him figure out how to live his own life. He's not going to fit that image that we think for him. It's him. And all of a sudden we see that for our daughter as well. 
oh, it's her life as well. We're here to help her navigate these problems that she's having at school or with friends or with people. And all of a sudden, it changes. All of a sudden, it puts it into perspective. Our job is to help them become the individual they are going to be or that they are and to love themselves as they are. And what better way to practice not taking things personal than becoming a parent and facing that truth, taking off that life vest and letting them make decisions in their own way. Let them make decisions about money. Let them make decisions about relationships. Let them make decisions that's going to change their life and impact. And we see what's coming. But here's the thing. We only see what's coming for us. We don't know what's coming for them. That has been an incredible moment that has changed my life. You know, you can say that just a few months ago, I was dealing with quite a bit of fear, you know, with uh, autism and puberty. That brings a whole, if, 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 there, if there's parents out there who know this combination, they, they know what I'm talking about. It's, 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 it's shifted. All of a sudden, I'm not so much afraid. I almost want to realize, okay, I know what my job is. I'm going to teach them how to live life as they want to. And it's them. So in that journey, of course, I see myself in it. There's no way I don't see myself in that. I see that in my own journey and how I've done it. And I see it in them. And my love for them is that I have been able to see it and it's about finding that balance of when to intervene and when not to, to let them find their own strengths and enjoy their own life. And all of a sudden, I can use that same lesson, not just with my kids, but with everyone in my life. It's like relearning what I've been teaching for the last 10 years all over again. But this time, it's, it's dealing with two people whom I love so, so much. And that's my journey at the moment. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to hear now if you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your books and your dad's books and your family's books, what one book would you choose? The book that my father taught us when we were 13, which is Herman Hesse's Damien. It's uh, It's a turning of age. A story of you know uh, of a German who lived in uh, Germany, of course, but before World War One and uh, facing life and facing that bubble. That's a book. Uh, the other one would be uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which, in my point of view, it's a, it's a book about spirituality. It follows the whole shamanic journey. It just happens to be about money, but it allows you to become aware of what money is. The other book that I would I I absolutely love. And it's because it's my favorite book. It's Love in Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's my favorite book. I absolutely love his words and his and his way of the magical realism that is liter- literary world. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but I haven't read the other two. So thank you for that. I can't wait to um, read your favorite books. It sounds awesome. There's one more book, and it's called uh, The Reason Why I Jump by Naoki Higashida. I love that book. All right, cool. We'll link to that in the show notes too. I haven't read that one either, so I love getting your recommendations. I'd love to hear now how your day looks. Like, Do you have a morning routine? How do you prime yourself to, for the day? Are you a meditator? Like, How do you set yourself up in the morning for a successful day? 
Well, my morning routine is this. At 5.45, my alarm goes off and me and my wife get up and we start preparing the food for our kids and we get them off to school. My son goes off at 6.45, my daughter at 7.50. So our morning routine, luckily, they, they both of them leave at different times. So it first starts by serving and helping my son get ready for his day and you know making sure he's fed and and all that same thing with my daughter so for the first 2 hours of my morning it's in complete service to my children me and my wife both help our children to go through their day you can say it's our selfless act because we want them to enjoy their day once they are off to school what my wife and I do and these are the days when she's not working grab a cup of coffee we sit in the couch, turn on the television. We sometimes watch the, the television, but what, what normally happens is that we start talking uh, with each other. We, we tap into one another and we share with one another how things are going, our thoughts. Sometimes we say nothing at all. We just simply watch the television and with our cup of coffee. Sometimes we talk, but what we do is we spend that hour together enjoying each other. And around nine o'clock or yeah, nine o'clock, we get up and we engage the day and do everything we have to do. Beautiful. So nice. So nice that you take that time for each other. It's really beautiful. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Just one thing that we can implement today. Taking care of ourselves. And that's going to be different for all of us. There's there's 7.5 billion ways of doing it. We're all different. Taking care of ourselves simply is letting ourselves be in touch with ourselves, be in tune with ourselves, know what's making us feel happy, what's not making us happy, what's making us feel sick, what makes me feel uncomfortable. And we take the steps to heal that. To me, that's the most important thing, to be in tune with yourself in order to heal yourself. And and the reason why I'm not saying something set on is because there's 7.5 billion human beings left and all of us are going to be different as 7.5 billion people are but i guess the constant will be tune into yourself and know what resonates with you in order to heal yourself yeah we're all so individual and in your opinion what is one of the most important things that we can do for more wealth in our life so more abundance in all areas of our life not just financial but every area I am the constant in every relationship that I am in, which means love, love for myself, love for, for the people in my life. I say that that is the most thing that we need the most of, you could say. What the world needs now is love, pure love. Uh, I would say that's, that is exactly that. My father defines love as the balance between gratitude and generosity, the gratitude to for everything we have, including our breath, our heartbeat, and the relationships we have, and the generosity to share that with other people. I can't give what I do not have. So for me, that balance between generosity and gratitude is love. I love that. And that kind of follows on from my last little rapid-fire question. What is one thing we can do today for more love in our life? Enjoy being alive. Is there anything else that you want to share, any parting words of wisdom, anything that we haven't spoken about that you would like to leave us with? A moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. But a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. 
Becoming aware of our truth right now is what allows us to change direction if we want to in order to create a life that we enjoy. It requires that moment of being honest with ourselves. Being honest with yourself today, I feel good. Today, I don't feel so good. Today, I'm capable of doing it. Today, I'm not. And adapting to that reality. So to me, awareness is being in constant communion with myself and the environment that surrounds me. Oh, well, I just want to personally thank you so much for all of your wisdom, the work that you're doing. This has been such a beautiful, deep conversation, and I have just loved it so much. And one more thing that I want to ask you is I'm a massive believer in service. I believe that's why we're here on earth is to be of service and help each other. How can I and the listeners serve you today? What can we do to serve you? Well, help me change the world. Not the world out there, but the world in your mind, the the world that you perceive inside your own self. Become aware of the things that make you unhappy. Become aware of the things that make you uncomfortable. And ask yourself, is this something I can heal? And if it is something you can heal, either by action or by changing a routine or changing your diet or just simply taking a moment to enjoy your breath, it changes your whole world. You can listen to your favorite music. You can listen to your favorite, read your favorite book, engage your favorite conversation, or have your favorite cup of tea or cup of coffee or or, or meal. And those are the things that makes us happy. What, What makes you happy? Find that. Enjoy that and share that. And that's how we change the world. Compassion, love gratitude and generosity beautiful thank you so much miguel this has been such a beautiful conversation i'm so grateful for your time and your wisdom and for just sharing so openly and honestly and for being with us today so thank you so much that's my honor melissa thank you so much for the opportunity to share my family's tradition with you and and be able to talk to you thank thank you so much and i hope you're having a wonderful time on the other side of the world there in Australia as on this side of the world we are all one and hope you're having a lot of fun I sure am you too thank you what a beautiful human being and a great conversation I didn't realize it was going to go down this conscious parenting path but that's where it just flowed to and so you know I really wanted to honor that and I got a lot out of today's episode and if you did too please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire even more people together and don't forget to tell me on social media either on Twitter Instagram or Facebook who you would like me to have on the show and for everything that Don and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 109. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. Don't forget that you can now get your hands on my latest book, Open Wide, a radically real guide to deep love, rocking relationships and soulful sex. All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And when you're there, you can also get access to my free open wide video masterclass that Nick and I created just for you. 
And don't forget, if you want to be the review of the week for next week, head to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here. Oh, I love you so much. Thank you for wanting to be the best version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock and you are making a difference. And now if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please, please, please share it with them right now. Take a screenshot, share it on your social media, on your stories, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you have got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.